Ani Bujo Wache Scano. Good afternoon. My name is Faith Rivers. I am a director of Heritage Mississauga and a member of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. It is my pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Carolyn King. For over 30 years, Carolyn King has been an ambassador for her people. She has made a lifelong commitment to help people develop a better understanding of Indigenous and First Nations people of Canada. A descendant of the Mississaugas of the Credit through her grandmother's line of the Tobico family. Carolyn has a special connection to the traditional territory of her people. Carolyn has supported Heritage Mississauga on numerous projects over the last 18 years, including Manjitoin 2005 and 2010, which is known as The Gathering. As part of the organization's Indigenous Programs Committee, organizing, presenting workshops, teaching events, consulting on published material, including comics and booklets in our 1812 commemoration video project. Throughout her work across the traditional territory, she came across little to reflect that the First Nations people were ever here and still are here. She developed the uh, Moccasin Identifier Project to ensure that we're not forgotten. The project provides an addition, an education program for schools and groups and stencils of the nations that lived with the territory that are used to paint moccasins on the ground, showcasing the footsteps of the Mississaugas. Carolyn is committed to bringing awareness and preservation of the Mississaugas culture, traditions and heritage. Carolyn will join us again on December 1st to speak of the important project and its goals. Please use the Q&A portion of your screen if you have any questions or comments. Over to Carolyn. Good morning, everyone, or I guess it's noon hour. Good afternoon. So um, thank you very much for um, inviting me to do this. I've been uh, uh, hearing your faith use those numbers. I think I I, um, uh, I should probably update my uh, number of years that I've been doing this. Um, the first time we did an outreach, an actual outreach as the First Nation was in 1985. So that's like... 35 years ago, and that uh, uh, we actually did it at the local farm, uh, what do you call it, the plowing match. We were up in uh, Paris and uh, did a two, two booths there, and kind of the first time we stood out there on the front line and said, I am, and here we are. And that uh, was scary, but we've done it and continued to do it. Uh, a whole group of us from the Mississaugas of the Credit, and that... Uh, so as Faith noticed, I've been I've been doing outreach, educational um, programming, um, not as a teacher, but as a you might say a facilitator of uh, information about our community, and that's how Indian 101 started. I um, was in a um, I worked as a marketing um, promotional person with a local business uh, center, and. I would be doing, uh, every time that I'd be talking to somebody, I'd have to go through the whole history about who we are, where we are, and why we are. And uh, and I would do it just like as a teacher. I would do it on flip chart. I'd do the, the chronological, you know, like in chronological order, like, you know, the building of Canada and things like that. And that uh, then I started to travel to, to go out to other places, and I had to put it on a... Um, uh, you know, techno use technology and put it on a 
put it on a stick, as they say. And that's so. And Indian 101 has, I've been delivering it ever since to well, anyone who listen and wants to hear, learn more, uh, go to government office, universities, um, organ, historical organ, lots of historical organizations I've, I've presented at. And that's so. So here, for those who are here, thank you very much. I'm glad to meet you and we'll get started. Somebody's helping me with the, uh, the slides. And so the new word today, we call it Indian 101, and people say we're not supposed to use that word anymore. And I, um, I tell them that I use that word because I know it's politically incorrect, but we're still, uh, if I'm in the classroom or I'm in, in a group meeting, we, I pass around my, my status card, and it's called Certificate of Indian Status. So we're still identified that the land we live on here at the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation uh, is on Indian reserve land. And that, uh, so we're still identified as that. And that's the whole historical context. And the new words, um, as I say, were Indian 101. If we're politically correct, it would be Indigenous 101, which I have to use sometimes because they don't want to use the word uh, in their building. And that, uh, and I tell people, I can say it, you can't. And that uh, um, it's just what I, I call in, uh, Indian 101 or Indigenous 101 is that it's a um, um, primer. This is all information that is out there. I have just had to put it together in a way that and I think that people get a basic understanding of it. And I, I say it's, it's chapter and verse of the law. And that's so you know, try to talk about, you know, other scenarios, but this is, you know, all of these things can be checked within the law. And that, uh, so in this day and era of what we're seeing out there in the system, uh, Faith uh, mentioned that, you know, she's a member of the Mexican, she's also a resident. And so as I am, she's just next door to me, but we both, um, uh, I'm born and raised on a Indian, the Indian reserve be it Six Nations, and I married over to New Credit, and I've become a member here. And so I have lived here all my life uh, and worked here. And so, you know, it makes a big difference. Uh, you know, the, the news today is carrying a, uh, a news story about someone who's claiming to be uh, Indigenous, uh, uh, claiming to be Métis, and um, been falsely claiming based on what the, the story leads. And she just left her position and um, we're connected to that group. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, Faith, if you didn't realize that that's where Malcolm King is from, that, uh, that health institute out there. Uh, he just retired, but very much connected. And he presents, he presents to us about that center. Uh, we haven't met that lady, but at any rate, yeah, we're all kind of like, oh my goodness. You know, you hate to think that you have to go check people's credentials. Uh, from when they claim who they are. But I think you can safely say that both Faith and I are members, lived here all our life, and we're on the Indian band list, and we have a bloodline to the, to the uh, Mississaugas and the Six Nations and the Iroquois Haudenosaunee community. So here we go. Uh, who are the Aboriginal people in Canada today? See, I changed the word. So now the word, you know, we're Indian, and then we're Aboriginal but based on 1982 when they did the Constitution of Canada and got our rights entrenched into the, the Constitution of this country. And uh, 2016, they rechanged our, our identifier to call it uh, Indigenous. 
So we have to we have to keep trying to keep up to the new labels that come on us, and that uh, so that uh, it's a. Uh, I'll have to maybe change that. Uh, I should do a little slide about that, I guess, about the different names that we've been in the years that we were we were identified as that. So next, Aboriginal defined, and as I said, we are in we are legislated people, and that. We and uh, our, our first our nation uh, as a group, uh, our elected councils are all legal bodies, and that uh, um, they have a name. Uh, we're actually called our legal name for the for the Mississaugas is Mississaugas of the Credit. We had added new, and I did that way back when, um, because when we moved here from old credit, uh, what we call old credit or along the Credit River there. Uh, New credit was born, and that's what the historical record says. So we're still, if we build a town here, a village, maybe that village will be called New Credit. Um, but we're on the Mississaugas of the Credit uh, Indian Reserve, and that uh, the historical record uh, records it as that. And people get all mixed up because they don't know whether we're New Credit or of the credit or whatever. And so we're always trying to keep up. Uh, as I say, the Constitution defines Aboriginal as the status Indian, Métis, and Inuit. And so for uh, uh, us, we have status Indian. We are go have a process where you are go through, apply, and as long as your records are in order and that you can be uh, classed as a status Indian and that it is um, uh, recognized. Um, and we'll talk further about each one of these as we go. Next. Inuit means the people. And I'm told that every group uh, in the world has a name for itself and basically means the people. Um, so when you say the Inuit people, you are saying people, people. Uh, so, but we all do it. The people who live in the northern areas of Canada, there are no land bases for the Inuit in Ontario. Uh, it's all very much north and you know that they have none of it uh, based on the 1990, I think. Uh, they have a land base with boundaries, a language, uh, culture, and traditions. And I think we, you know, there's the Inuit and their dress and traditions is, you know, very well known. Um, and since this is, I've always been in the community economic development, it's kind of an economic development um, program or, or information to let people know that the Inuit pay taxes. And the, what's the bottom line here? They have access to programs and services. And as a, one of the territories, uh, none of it is its own legal body. And based on, they have a whole line. Um, I was described as one fifth of Canada's land base that uh, none of it now has. Next. The Métis, uh, the term is French, mixed blood. And I get this definition from uh, this information from their website and that uh, the Métis were originally people uh, referred to as the people from the Red River colony in Manitoba. That's where it all stems from. Uh, Louis Riel was a Métis and now recognized as one of the founding fathers of Canada. And, you know, Louis Riel got hung uh, for his uh, claims and the changes that he wanted to make and the you know, the making of Canada, and that uh, he was, uh, 
you know, later successful and you know, being recognized. Uh, today, the Métis take on another meaning. It's not just the Red River colony people. It's people who have an indigenous background in their, say, genealogy, but they are not able to become a member of a First Nation or, a, you know, the First Nations of, of Canada. And that's so they, uh, if they can show that they have a background, a bloodline, you might say, and be, ex be accepted. And then what you'll see in the next one we go on, um, what they get access to being a status Indian. Next. The Métis have no land base. There's, there's no land set aside for them. Um, most of them are out west. They have Métis settlements or communities. And in Ontario, there are uh, three main ones. And now I'm told more, what's called communities where a number of people live or they have, a, they have their own political structure and that they um, um, speak, you know, for their areas. And that uh, the, the one thing about the Métis is that uh, maybe disturbs us a bit is that they claim every, whenever they're, wherever the First Nation is, they, and their territory, they claim that. Uh, it's just like I know that there's a uh, Métis Nation, uh, Credit River Métis Nation. And so they've just attached their, their name to our location and we're the treaty holders uh, as well as the, the areas our traditional territory on that. So the Métis, uh, and this is all part of the development of Canada. They were always connected with the fur traders or settlers coming in. And that's so uh, they've developed the language, culture, and traditions. And if you invite the Metis to come in, you'll see that they have the red, uh, the sash. Uh, they have, um, they do a, a fiddle and a, a, what they call a jig. Uh, and they, uh, we didn't know, and I met some out west. Uh, uh, and that we went to an event with them and there was a, a, they had a musical band playing and they were called Road Allowance. That was the name of the band. And there's books written about that with that title. And that because they were mixed blood, that they couldn't live in their own First Nations community uh, or their nation community. And because they'd married an indigenous person, um, basically a woman, then they could, she couldn't live in theirs equally and fairly as, as a, a, a non-native person. And they lived in the road lots out in the Western states. And uh, like I said, there's uh, you know, books written about that. And there's a, a, a natural musical band that they play under that name called Road Allowance. And so uh, they've had to develop uh, their own to recognize them, who they are and what happened to them. And they pay taxes. Uh, the uh, Métis may, may live right beside you. You may not even know that they have an, a, an indigenous background and that they're, they're living next door, just like you know you live and with the house and property and going to work and pay income tax. So that's uh, not the same as the, the rest of us. And they have access to programs and services. And you see the different organizations now have an Aboriginal um, uh, component and the, uh, you know, that we can all go that go to that 
place, that space, and uh, there'll be information about us, uh, including the Métis, including the Inuit. If they just say Aboriginal, then it includes all those, those people, those groups. Next. In 2012, after many, many years, the Supreme Court of Canada presented their decision that Métis are considered Indians. Uh, this doesn't mean that they were immediately, this was immediately instituted. An appeal was launched. Next. Okay, go back. And that the appeal was launched and they won. Uh, they won their appeal. And that, because uh, Canada tried to stop it. And so the Métis are uh, in the process of uh, becoming, going back to their, you know, the non-native side and the in, indigenous side, uh, First Nation, and those who are considered status Indians, and that they uh, uh, would have to, they would line up. Uh, so in our case, uh, women who um, have an indigenous bloodline to our First Nation uh, can get reinstated back into being a status Indian. And that is underway. New things are changing. The legislation is changing. And I often say to people that uh, in order to become a member and understand the membership criteria for us, you have to go to school for a year to figure out what it is. Um, we have a membership office. Uh, Margaret Salt has been there forever. And that um, she uh, is that department, Lands Research and Membership. They actually administer the, uh, uh, you know, applications to become a member of the Mississaugas and uh, take people through the process uh, to be recognized. And the First Nation Council still does the acceptance of it uh, sort of locally. So the, uh, so and it's still underway and still am, Im, is now impacting us very much so. Just like uh, later on, I'll show you, talk about Bill C-31 in the impact of uh, legislation and what it does to the First Nation. Um, next, a status Indian uh, or First Nation. The Indian Act defines who is the status Indian. And that's all the criteria in the Indian Act. There's new rules, uh, regulations, and we now have numbers where 6A, 6B, 62B, there's all kinds of names like that. We get a number to define whether we have uh, two Indigenous parents or not. And that uh, it's like I said, you have to go through a whole training program to know, to, to figure that out. Um, the First Nations, they have a land base with boundaries, language, culture, and traditions. And that the land is in the legal terminology is set apart uh, from all the other rules and regulations and how this land is separated and, and under different rules and regulations. Uh, in, in every uh, province across the country, there are uh, First Nations and there's other things called federal land. Uh, for instance, in Hamilton, we have the Hamilton Harbor Commission. Uh, we have the Hamilton Airport, that's federal uh, jurisdiction, all that land there. Uh, in Toronto, there's, um, uh, well, uh, Toronto, Mississauga uh, has the airport and that is federal land. And they're all controlled by a federal entity. And that the, um, they, and every municipality has to uh, uh, 
have a relationship with that federal entity. Over in the uh, federal national parks are also the same way. They're under federal jurisdiction and you have to build relationships and understand what's happening across the road. And we're exactly the same way that uh, we're, we're adjacent here uh, to the Six Nations Indian Reserve. So we have federal land all down, uh, all down the side of us. And then over on the south side, we have uh, provincial land or municipal land. And we have the town of Haldeman adjacent to, uh, well, adjoining. It. Uh, so we have to work with them for road work, ditching, draining, a drainage type thing. And we're all dealing with drainage right now with all this water. And that, um, see, so the Ontario Drainage Act applies to them. And if you didn't know what provincial rules do not apply on an Indian reserve. So there's always got to be. Uh, you know, discussions and relationship building um, about that. So the the drain runs right through the reserve and comes out the other end. But in the middle of it, when it's on a, when across our land, it that doesn't apply. But what I I see in all of my work that most First Nations all use that as a guide to be part of you know the uh, the overall system, and that. Um, the, uh, and you have to make relations. We, we have relations here for the Mississaugas. Um, we, we work with them for the landfill site. Uh, we, they supply water, comes through the, the uh, Ontario water supply system and comes down through Haldeman and then into our reserve. And that's how we have uh, uh, a supply of good water. After many years of not having enough water or not having good water, we now have piped water that uh, we're, we're able to drink it. And that's so, but like I said, fire services, a hospital is like less than 10 minutes away. Uh, so we use all those services out there um, because we don't, uh, we're, we're almost like too small to have our own. Um, so in there, like I said, we have a land base with boundaries. We have language, which is Nishinaabe, Nishinaabe, uh, Nishinaabe Bowen, and culture and traditions. And on the reserve, is where we pay no tax. There's no land tax uh, for property taxes. Uh, the non-native listeners might be paying. Um, and for people like me who work on the reserve, or you know, we're, we're working on the reserve, we do not have to pay income tax uh, on our, our money earned. And there's a, there's now special forms that you fill out to make sure that you don't get charged uh, for your taxes. All all legal legislative process. And uh, that to feed, to meet the Indian Act and the treaties and obligation, the treaty uh, uh, criteria that is uh, says that we're separate. So, uh, and what we have is access to programs and services, and we have rights and benefits as defined in the Indian Act and through the treaties that we've signed. And if you didn't know much about us, that we have the Mississaugas have signed. 23 different treaties of land succession or actual outright treaties. And where we're on the, uh, for here, I'm sitting on uh, in, within what's called between the Lakes Treaty, Treaty 3, and that uh, uh, then Mississauga is on Treaty 13A, uh, right adjacent to Toronto with the Treaty 13, 1805. So those are all things that, you know, I've, I, uh, in my work that I have to know about and understand 
uh, and uh, if you didn't know what I was, I was, uh, I worked, I was the chief at the 1997 to 99, and I relaunched the Toronto Purchase Claim. So well versed in uh, that process as well. And that's so uh, that's the difference in when we talk about the Indigenous people of Canada that there is an Indian Act across the country, and there are treaties respective of every different area that they're in. We're in the foot of Southern Ontario and surrounded by people. Um, others are in the North and I'll, there'll be a map later about the different treaties uh, in uh, Canada. Next. The following map shows that number of Indian reserves and their location. There's 100, actually 133 uh, First Nations in Ontario, 126 uh, receive core funding from Indian Affairs. If you went to the Indian Affairs website, you wouldn't see that number. Um, because they don't recognize everybody who, who's declared themselves as a First Nation. And that, so they don't get money from Indian Affairs like we do. Um, and that uh, uh, I, when I'm doing a classroom, I, I have what I call my little pop quizzes. And I, I have Tim Horton's coffee cards if anybody gets it right. So I ask that question, how many First Nations in Ontario? and people will have all kinds of numbers. Um, then I asked how many First Nations in Canada? And it's 600, over 600. Uh, they keep redefining that number because some bands are, there's maybe three different reserves. So they're not a separate group. They just have different reserves in their name. And uh, right here for us as the Mississaugas, we're adjacent to the Six Nations of the Grand River. And they're the largest populated reserve in Canada. Not the, not the largest land base that is out in uh, Western Canada, Alberta, and it's the blood uh, tribe out there. Oop. Um, but Six Nations, according to their, uh, their current uh, data, 27,000 are on their membership list. And that uh, about half of them, 12,000 to 13,000 live on reserve. So these segments of between Six Nations New Credit uh, where it's a big, big uh, section of land. Uh, they have 45,000 acres right here. And they have another five up in Brantford where the Wood Woodland Culture Center or the Mohawk Institute is located. It's called the Glee property. And for us, we have uh, 2,248 acres of land here uh, where we live on uh, since 1847 that we've come back to live uh, adjacent to the Six Nations. And that, um, so I have to say about the, uh, our relationship with Six Nations, the Mississaugas had claimed the land in our historical context. We had uh, laid claim to the land through conquest because the Iroquois from out of the states, you know, that the, all the Haudenosaunee Iroquois communities are all very New York state upper uh, in the Northeast. All that's, there's no, no mistaking that that's all their land. The, the Finger Lakes down there are all named after the, uh, Iroquoian uh, groups, and that uh, then they, as uh, I call it, the fur trade caused the, you know, people looking to be able to uh, uh, get access to more furs that they could do the, the, the trade and get more stuff. And that they moved into Southern Ontario. And that was basically the Senecas who come into Southern Ontario for about, historians got the number somewhere between 35 to 50 years that they came to settle in the foot of Southern Ontario. And the other groups, uh, the Iroquois, I mean, the Anishinaabe and the, uh, the uh, even the Hurons and 
Mundats, and there's numbers, uh, numerous other Iroquoian type things. They weren't part of the Confederacy, but they're Iroquoian speaking. You got the neutrals, the the Tudlos, the Eries, um, a lot of different smaller groups who were overtaken when the the ma major Iroquois Seneca pushed into Southern Ontario and really decimated them. And either they were taken into their group uh, or they moved away. And uh, like for instance, we call the Huron-Wendat who are all of their settlement remnants, um, uh, their villages and their artifacts are in the ground, but they don't, most of them don't live here. They live in, in um, Quebec in a place called Wendaki, Quebec. And that, uh, but very much a part of uh, Ontario's history. And we have several of them on our, in our, uh, our group who have been living here, uh, but just in small numbers. And so they're having to make sure that their, their sites are recognized and preserved and protected. So there's lots of work like that going on to preserve the Huron Wendats. And uh, so, and then the, for the, the, the Mississaugas and the Anishinaabe and the, our groups of people, Potawatomi, Odawa, Ojibwe, um, they're all the same people. Uh, it just have a different names, right? Uh, we're the Mississaugas and that we're under the Ojibwe. And they battled and they pushed them back across the border. And the border was the Niagara, Niagara River and uh, that they were, uh, so that's a reclaimed land in 1600s, way back for a long, long time uh, that we were, we have been here, our people. And that we lived around the Toronto area, Mississauga, all around the Great Lakes. So we're often referred to as the Great Lakes people. And that encompasses a huge area. And for us, that's all of our treaty land. Basically the greater golden horseshoe is where we'll see on the map, uh, what area, what that covers. So just that I mean, we're going out there to talk to people uh, about you know whose land it is, uh, which I'm going to be doing tomorrow with the developers. Uh, that map's going to be important, and that. Uh, so anyway, move on. This here is a map of Ontario, which is provided by Indian Affairs. Uh, they keep track of all of us, and that uh, this shows all the different groups and their numbers. And you can see in Northern Ontario, there's still small communities and fly in. So there's always a different circumstances. You'll see in the bottom part there, the foot of Southern Ontario, there's about 23 First Nations uh, in the foot of Southern Ontario. Um, that's kind of like Nipissing North Bay South that um, we're in the, we're, um, our life is a little bit different because we're impacted by all the economic development uh, and the development and the people who want to come and live in the foot of Southern Ontario and be near jobs and stuff like that. So we're very, very impacted and influenced by the settlement community has come in. And that's so, and still growing. It's just scary the amount of growth that's happening in, in the foot of the Southern Ontario. But usually if I'm out there, I take this map and I ask people to hang it up in their wall so that they know where we are. You know, who, who, who we are and where we are. And you'll notice all around the Great Lakes, the head of the, uh, the Great Lakes, that's kind of the Robinson-Huron uh, Treaty, uh, Treaty 50, and that they, uh, lots of First Nations, uh, Anishinaabe, uh, are all right there. And they go from Thunder, Thunder Bay, uh, which is Lake Fort William, all the way around into uh, 
uh, I guess Georgina Island, Christian Island are all in that same area. Next, this here is just a graphic number to let you know that the Six Nations are the, uh, let people give a perspective about when they have to talk to people or they, they know people from different uh, First Nations about those reserves. Six Nations are called Six Nations because they have all the, all of the, the different uh, Confederacy groups in them. Um, and I use this acronym because I forget to. I when I was uh, I was born and raised, I was on the on the Mohawk list. Uh, I remember the Mohawks, but I was on the Oneida list. So there's the Cayugas, the Mohawks, the Oneidas, the Onondagas, the Tuscaroras, and the Senecas. Um, that's not the order that they work in, because it's the Mohawks, uh, the Cayugas, and the Onondagas. And the Onondagas are the fire keepers. In our world of the Anishinaabe, where the the Mississauga, or I mean, where the Potawatomi, Badawa, and the um, um, Ojibwe, and the Potawatomis are the fire keepers. In our traditional way of looking at our structures, those the fire keepers are are an important part of keeping who we are. Yeah, so, and we go to them to if we're going to have a really special fire. And we want the Potawatomis in there to start the fire. And at Six Nations here, they have a uh, uh, one of their longhouses is the uh, Onondaga longhouse, and that's where the fire's kept uh, there. So when they meet every first of the Saturday of the month, they meet there. Um, matter of fact, they'll be meeting this Saturday, uh, and still meet as a confederacy. And they'll be at the Onondaga longhouse <coughs> discuss to discuss issues, current issues, and uh, do things for their for their members and people. So, but that's Six Nations. The next biggest group is Akwesasne. And that's just the Canada numbers. Uh, Akwesasne is on the boundary of, of Canada and the United States. And they are between Ontario and Quebec. And that their whole land base is right there. So they're, they have a whole bunch of members uh, in the United States. So they probably got another uh, five, thousand people in the United States side and that's so they're a very big community and they get that uh they have to deal actually they get to, they get to deal with both sides uh the rules and regulations of both both countries and uh, as well as the uh the um Great Lakes uh, the the St. Lawrence that runs right through their community and then the next one is Tyendinaga uh next size is uh um that is up at Belleville and they have a big community and a large land base there. Just did a settlement just in the news a couple of weeks ago about a land, uh, they got some land back um, and some money. Um, then you get, uh, we call it Wiki, but it's Wick Wimokan, and that is up on Manitoulin Island. And they have the whole side, uh, if you look at the eastern side of the island, is Wick Wimokan. They have a large base there, and that they are um, basically all Nishinaabe. Potawatomi, uh, Odawas, not Odawas, Potawatomi's mainly, uh, Odawas, sorry, I'm saying the wrong one, um, but they're, it's all in Ojibwe language, uh, just with different dialects. And then we have the um, uh, um, Oneida uh, up by London, uh, and they came in as a more like a settlement as opposed to an actual Indian reserve set aside, but uh, that was their original stuff. Then we get to uh, um, Big Wanagan is uh, Wapol Island, 
uh, the big community, an island community. And then we have Moose Cree, which is way north, a big community. And then um, other communities you see there start to uh, get in the lower numbers under sort of under 5,000. And that, that's where new credit is. We have 2,000, I think our number is 27, 2,700 right now. And we have less than a quarter, about 600, uh, 700 people who live on reserve. Most have lived off reserve and, and not all of them um, are, you know, want to come home or come home. They've made their lives out there living in the rest of the world uh, around us. And then you can see all the way down to the little communities that have uh, like maybe 200 on their membership list and that, uh, but they're still recognized as a Indian band council or elected band council. Uh, like Mississauga is a Scugog up on Scugog Island there near Port Perry. Uh, they're a very small group, a couple hundred people. Uh, they have a chief and two counselors. And that, so, and they still have, they, even as small as they are, and if they're living in Northern components of rural remote, they still have to carry up the same kind of work that every Indian reserve has to do. You know, they have chief and council, they have administration, they deliver programs and services on the reserve. And almost all of that is through a transfer of, from the government to look after the, the First Nations people as well as part of the treaties and the taking of land for the settlers to come and live here. Next. There's just another pictorial picture of that. People like to try to figure out, and where am I? Where am I in there? Uh, type things. So I put all those numbers together for, for people. Next. A status Indian or First Nation. The Indian Act defines the land base for a status Indians and First Nations. Indian reserves are legislated. They are federal lands set apart for the sole use and benefit of that respective Indian band. Uh, this is the only place where there are no taxes. I keep bringing up the tax issue because people tend to think that we're all looked after. We don't have to pay tax. <coughs> but as I mentioned, that it's only on reserve that you don't get to pay uh, income tax and we don't pay a property tax uh, on, our, um, on our land. But for instance, my husband, um, being that we're undeveloped, that my husband worked off reserve all his life and he was a taxpayer. And so even, you know, in his retirement years, he still paid tax and, you know, whenever I work off reserve, uh, I have to pay income tax as well. That right doesn't carry through with us when we go work other places. Um, that's, so they're only recognized as a, a status Indian with that specific right when we're working on the Indian reserve. Uh, so that hasn't changed yet. And there's, rules and proclamations and different things within the government that uh, our people haven't got been able to get through. So I find that uh, some people that they don't understand why we as First Nations uh, don't have to pay uh, certain things and they do. Uh, when somebody has to take $2 out of their pocket to pay for uh, taxes or their you know, provincial HST and that, and we don't, uh, that it can create a lot of conflict because they're not educated. Nobody tells them that this is this is it's this way because of this, and all of the rules and regulations and treaties and legislations are still in play in this country, uh, but they're not. Um, the school system does not educate people about that. 
And so it becomes a point of conflict. And that's why we, we do our best to go out there and educate. And we have great groups like uh, uh, Heritage Mississauga who keeps the story and uh, uh, keeps our story and uh, educates people, uh, helps us educate more people. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, next. For on reserve, the land tenure is a is a different thing, and people don't understand why they just can't come here. Say none people come here. Oh, you got all this land here uh, that's not being used. Maybe I can just set up my business here. And that uh, that on most reserves, a member of the Indian Reserve can hold land through what's called a certificate of possession. And we call it here, we call it CP land. Uh, the land is the land is held in trust by the crown, so it's not fully or ours. Next. We are unable to use the land or buildings on it as security like you can. When you want to go get a mortgage to buy a house, we don't have that. Uh, uh, want to start a business? Because uh, we're whatever or, or uh, we cannot use any of those assets, even if you have a lot of them, that you cannot hold, use that land, use that land or buildings on it uh, to put up as collateral if at the bank. So we're always behind because we can't do that. People say, well, how come you can't develop? How come this? How come that? And they say, well, you just can't, you can't come here. You can't hold land. And, uh, you know, you're at the mercy of the council or the First Nation. If you come here, build a building and say, I'm doing this, then you decide to leave and then you just have to leave. You know, there are circumstances where people have just been kicked out. A good example, next door, Six Nations, when they tried to start that huge business and everything went wrong and the people never got their stuff back because they couldn't come on the Indian Reserve and collect it. So there's scenarios like that that scare the business community and how they do, how we're going to do business with us. So we try to explain how that all works and what kind of relationship it needs and the kind of resources that can be put on the table that are that make a business feel secure. Um, in the way that they're going to do business. Uh, here at the Mississaugas, we do have non-native business who, who rent our buildings and run services uh, out of the reserve. And we've done been able to keep a good relationship with them to um, uh, rent the space, uh, employ our people, uh, as many as they can, and then to run successful business uh, located with us. So that makes for a big difference about with people to understand how we build a relationship and move forward. And we can do that. We have, um, uh, you can surrender your land for development, like at some reserves having big industrial parks where the land is surrendered. It's, it is Indian, Indian reserve land, but it's uh, surrendered for development. So it fits another criteria. Uh, or we can lease it out to somebody. Uh, give them a permit, like we have uh, Native Horizons Treatment Center here through Health Canada, and they rent a building, they hold the land, rent a building, and pro provide the service there through a permit to use that land. And if they leave, then it's all just ours. And that's so, but they haven't left, they've been here for 30 years now. Uh, so, and moving on here, so I can use land for my livelihood, I can will it to my family, or sell it to another First Nation member uh, or to the council. 
the elected council is a legal administrator and that uh, it, we call just like how you call municipal land uh, off reserve. We call it bando. The First Nation elected council is a band. Uh, uh, according to the Indian Act, we're a band. Next. And there's a bit about this, you know, talked about the on reserve, off reserve. Uh, there's two numbers, membership or enrollment number. We're all legislative people and controlled by a membership uh, criteria. All the individuals are registered to a respective First Nation. And so then there's all the people who may live on or off reserve. Many of those living off reserve due to marriage or due to job opportunities, because there was basically no place to work other than uh, cleaning roads and ditches and building uh, a few houses a year. Um, so they went to work off reserve uh, and they left because of no available housing or they married a non-native person, which really changed uh, the First Nations people's lives. Next. It was unfair about where our, um, our uh, women married a non-native person and they lost their status. They were taken off the enrollment list and they could not, not hold land, uh, basically not even live on the reserve. And they had to go leave the reserve and go live, uh, live wherever their partner was. And that, uh, or they went there themselves uh, off reserve uh, if they became what they call enfranchised where you willingly give up your, your membership status uh, for a fee and often was encouraged. And, that, and all of that changed under Bill C-31. Uh, court decision uh, was taken, it was taken to the Supreme Court of Canada to raise those rules and regulations where a woman was, was um, denied her membership in a ban. And, uh, but on the other hand, and you can see how this is a very colonial document uh, that kind of following the church rules where the man is the head. And so if he married a non-native, no bloodline person, uh, that female was brought onto the reserve, uh, could be brought onto the reserve and became a part of our membership through that marriage. So that, and, but our in native women, they lost their status. So that was changed under Bill C-31 in 1985, um, where they were, they were um, moved, um, what do you call it, returned. Next. When the law, when it became law, and that was April 17th, 1985, um, Native women who had lost their status were able to be reinstated to their respective First Nation and have access to all the rights and benefits of a status Indian. Uh, the impact for us, our membership list soared, in some cases doubled, and that's what happened with New Prada. I was the community development worker, and so I used to keep track of the community profile about who was living here, who wasn't, the kinds of services we needed. And uh, um, so I was always trying to keep track of everything. People used to laugh at me because they say, how many houses, say 120, how many cars, uh, 100. How many tractors? 12. How many? <laughs> Just go on and on and answer all those questions. People would laugh at me and say, do you sit there and count these things? And we are sometimes. 
sometimes you count how many cars are going by and you know things like that how many farms they have i mean how many farms we had and how many animals they had and yeah their tractors and they were just i was like well how many how many today carolyn <laughs> my fellow economic development people but yeah that's why I, I you know i know a lot about the communities geography it's uh you know the rules and regulations and it's just something that we all have to know um because at some points it seems that we always got to be defending it so the yeah uh, for us, say when they came back to, to the reserve, not everybody wanted to come back uh, and live on the reserve. Next next slide. Um, but they, they um, you know, so maybe somebody married out and they're living in Hamilton and that they made a life there. Their kids are all raised there. And but they they're eligible to become a stat, uh, gain their status back. And that the numbers, you know, affects us because if they do choose to come back, not everyone in that family grouping may be eligible to be on the list um, based on the criteria of Indian Affairs. And so we're, we're funded by a government transfer per person, per asset. So when a woman returned and brought four kids with her and they're not status, eligible to be status Indians, we do not get to transfer them for them. And so you have to look after them. And it really affects our, um, uh, our school and funding for the school, in which case if we're, you know, we have a large number of non-native uh, kids in there uh, and we're not being funded for them and there are no taxes on the Indian Reserve. So there's, it creates, a, you know, when you're trying to run the country, the, the impact. So for us, we, it seems like when you read the books and read stories and stuff like that, it says that people, most of the people live off reserve and and that's true because they made their life there and they made choosing not to come back and they can't get a loan to build a house here. So there's lots of criteria, lots of barriers in the way to creating that. Uh, it's changing now, but it's still pretty tough to be able to get access money to get a house. Um, and I can tell you, there was no mass exodus from the reserve. Um, the new law created new members and those members may be living someplace else. No different than the world where, you know, we got citizens from North America who live in France or citizens of France who live here. They have a home base someplace else. Our little First Nations are very similar scenarios where we have people living in other people's countries. So next, the reserve that's set apart, um, it, the impact, when you think about what the Indian Act and how they fund us, Reserves are set apart for the sole use and benefit of its members. So when those people come back and they're not eligible, it really creates uh, an impact for the community. So what does a small Indian reserve do? Next. Due to the te land tenure circumstances, a status living it, a status Indian living on an Indian reserve must access alternative programs to build a house, start a business, and sometimes even buy goods and services, where we have a tax card where we can get the provincial tax off when we go to the store. Uh, that's not the case uh, for the GST. We still have to pay that. And the only place we get both taxes off is if you live on the reserve and the product is delivered, delivered here by somebody else, not us. Uh, so it's um, still uh, lots of criteria and challenges within that. And so when you say about starting a business on reserve, uh, so as part of my community economic development work, that we started a lending body. We got access to 
money uh, from the federal government to start a loan program for an Indian living on an Indian reserve. And then, and we lend, uh, I was with Two Rivers for around 20 years, um, uh, Community Development Center. I sat on the national body, National Aboriginal Capital Corporations to create a fund that we can get lend to a, an Aboriginal person. And in other places, it don't matter where they are, but for us on the Indian Reserve, uh, where you cannot claim, where you cannot go collect the collateral. So we lend on the person that they, you know, if it was a garage, uh, that they know how to, they're a mechanic, and that, uh, you know, there's a need for more mechanics on the, on the reserve, because we can't go take his building, uh, his equipment or anything, or his land. So we lend on 200% risk. So the, the process, the program is more about that we're a people and we have to work together, support one another to get, uh, to keep that loan going. And I'm proud to say that we're successful. Our group of funds, you can now fund up to a million dollars uh, and we run a whole loan program uh, that services Six Nations and new credit communities and help develop to where we are today. Um, so as I say, we have learned to live with alternative measures. It's not as straightforward as you might think. Next, treaties. Here's the treaty map. The native people, uh, depending on what side of the table you're on, the native people understood it to be a sharing agreement and they lost nothing. The non-native people understood it differently. It was theirs. A business transaction had occurred. And I'll tell you, the misunderstanding still continues. And that um, in our treaties, uh, I mean, all we need to do is look at Etobicoke, um, uh, the rivers, um, the credit, all of that. In those treaties, it said that we were, we could always come and hunt and fish and gather and harvest. Well, that didn't continue. And uh, I tell, I now say, we, we both have lived a lie. The governments of the day told you it was a business transaction and they had cleared the way for, you, for those settlers to come in here and settle the land build a house and do all what you know you do to make a make your home and make a village town city and that they told us that we were always able to go back there and hunt and fish and gather that is a lie on both sides because neither place was thing they should have told the people who bought the land that there was the indians were going to come back and hunt and fish and gather and there's lots of stories about how the the First Nations people went back there on the Humber, the credit, and they fish uh, or come back to hunt and fish along there or gather medicines along the, the rivers and waterways. And the people just, you know, they say, what was the result of that? They set the dogs on them, they built a fence or they shot them. There's lots of stories about circumstances. And, you know, on the, the um, I have an article that talks about, he sent a, a letter to the, to the government of the day and said, I don't know what to do. They keep coming back. Every spring they come back and say that they can fish here. And uh, so what am I supposed to do with them? You know, so it's just, uh, you know, I'll tell you lots of stories like that. Uh, next. Here's the map. This is produced by the uh, Indian Affairs Federal Government. And there's an Ontario map as well. If you just look at this week as we talk, uh, November 1st to the 5th is Treaty Recognition Week in Ontario. And it's legislated out of the, the uh, government, since actually Doug Ford government, PC government, and that uh, it's enacted uh, in 2017. And so it's new. 
but it is in recognizing that this is Ontario and these are the treaties. Treaty 9, Nishnabiyaski Nation and the North there, huge, well-written treaty. Treaty uh, 3, up to the other side, uh, right to the, goes right into the Manitoba border, goes into the United States. The Treaty 3 up there by uh, where Kenora is. Uh, then Treaty 5 comes out of the uh, Manitoba. <clears throat> As I mentioned earlier about uh, the Robinson-Huron Treaty, or Treaty 50, we often call it. And then the what they call the adhesion to the Robinson-Huron. And then we get the Williams Treaty there, up around Peterborough, um, Algonquin Park, we know that, all that area. Then you get what's called Upper Canada Treaties. There's two areas there. And that's where uh, the Mississauga Treaties are. We're in the Upper Canada. And some of our treaties were made before Canada was even Canada. And those treaties are still relevant today. So we're Upper Canada Treaties. And you'll see if you look at, say, Treaty 1, Treaty 2, there's other numbered treaties in this country. Um, but we're pre, uh, what do you call it, Upper Canada, pre-Confederation treaties. And we have Treaty 1, Treaty 3, uh, all the way up to Treaty 23. And uh, the Toronto Purchase 1805, which takes in the, the city of Toronto, you know, that parameter when they took that land. So all of treaty, and if we look at Canada, Canada is uh, basically all treaty land as well. And that's when you hear the First Nations when they come up and they talk about it's our land. This is why, that's why they understand, that's what they understand. This land was supposed to be in their name and held uh, for them in time immemorial. People don't realize that those things are still in place. Next. People often ask about the United States, what happened there? Very much similar, similar scenario. Our people all lived along the East, uh, all over uh, the United States, what's now uh, continental United States. And that you can see here how they've, they all got pushed across a whole nother story where they, when the 13 treaties got established after war and all of that, they pushed the, the in the States, they call them tribes. Uh, across the the lake, and early maps will show that the um, they look at all the western part of uh, the United States of America, and it's called Indian Land or Indian Country, and they moved like the Cherokee used to be in North and South Carolina. That's them over there in uh, Nevada, uh, uh, in the areas out there, and big sections of land. Some are, they're they're not like fifty eight fifty thousand acres like we got here. Um, but hundreds of thousands of acres were allocated to them and they still hold on to that. And that, uh, so you get the Navajos down around uh, Nevada, uh, uh, Arkansas, and um, mainly like, um, the name escapes me, Arizona, Arizona. Uh, that Arizona, the, con the state of Arizona, the four corners of Arizona are all tribal land and they control the waterways there. That big water, uh, canals that were there were out were there before they started to settle and the uh, the tribes there have uh, um, almost like beetle power on that water because they were there all the time before and the settlers came in and and they they just sort of like what's the word uh, cemented up <laughs> those those canals yeah i got some pictures of down in the arizona in the southern part of arizona where the little stream is all in a little concrete channel and that, uh, and so I, I tell people I was down there when they, uh, Obama was president and he was there in Arizona and he was meeting with the tribes there 
to talk about the access to water because every it, everything was drying up and he wanted a new agreement and he wanted them to sign off on it and they told him no and that's so very interesting times down there and that's so they're still still have you might say veto power on the water supply so next so today our nations are developing almost done here are developing and want to be able to live and well live as well as anyone else in this country with respect for our for their treaties and all the rights and benefits that go with them their culture and traditions their languages and their right to manage their existing lands and to have land returned that they consider rightfully theirs or to be compensated and that's where land claims come in next my words of wisdom uh, of working together it takes take someone who cares enough to do something ask one more question get one more perspective and take action to be a catalyst for making something something good happen lots of you can skip through these uh, there's uh, lots of resources you just took type in the in Indian Affairs, it'll take you to the different First Nations, uh, uh, or you type in the First Nation, uh, you know, for Treaties Week in Ontario, there's lots of resources there. If you want to know about us, uh, there's lots of general information that's out there. If you want to know about a respective First Nation, my suggestion is go talk to them. Build a dialogue, build a relationship. So I want to thank you for participating in my Native Awareness Training Session, Indian 101, or Politically Correct Indigenous 101. I hope you learned one or two things that you didn't know before. Come and visit New Credit. We'll, we'll give you the cook's tour. I help build most everything that's here. Jimmy Witch. Thank you again, Carolyn, for um, giving us so much information and for the greater society to learn more from your talk today. And I think one of the things that um, we can take away is, is even if it's just, at, you know, having more questions. And if you ever have anything that you want to get answered, please reach out to Heritage Mississauga or Carolyn and uh, or Jamie Gaspar, and we can help you answer those questions. And I just want to say um, it's been a great hour and a half. And again, um, Stacey, Chief Stacy LaForme will be on on uh, no, uh, November 17th from 12 to 1.30 talking about uh, truth and reconciliation. So uh, tune in. And then on um, December 3rd, Carolyn will be back again speaking on the... Uh, December 1st, right. December 1st on uh, the Moccasin Identifier. So please join us. And we have um, Darlene LaForm, who is going to be speaking about residential school and her experience on November 24th from 12 till uh, 1.30. So, Chi everybody, and have a great afternoon.